continuing with our series on prophecy and divine inspiration today we're going to begin something which will probably take a few weeks and and it'll be a little bit different than anything we've done before uh, but I think it will be extremely productive as I've already mentioned that the Ramchal Rabbi Moshe um, in the 1700s wrote two classic books that to this day are studied in all yeshivas doesn't matter what kind of yeshiva two, two books that are universally uh, not only accepted but just learned one is Der Hashem the way of God and the Silach Isharim. Can we translate that? Path of the Just. Path of the Just. The Ramchal led a very fascinating and uh, controversial life. And unfortunately, many of his writings uh, were were destroyed. But these two works made it, and uh, only later did people really appreciate his his brilliance. So in Derech Hashem, he has uh, a whole section on inspiration and prophecy. And the, the great thing about the Ramchal is in a, it's, it's not exactly this, uh, an exact uh, parallel, but just like the Rambam was able <coughs> to take all of Jewish law and organize it so methodically and uh, systematically, uh, the Ramcha was able to do for Kabbalah, philosophy, morals, and ethics. These two books are an incredible blend of all of those things. Kabbalah, philosophy, morals, and ethics. And that's why everyone learns them because he was able to present the Jewish view on so many things in such a clear, concise way that uh, people learn his books uh, constantly. That's the way of God and passes again. Yes. So what we're going to do, we're going to take from the way of God and I want to go through it systematically, the way he did it. Uh, 1700s, mid 1700s. He was he was born in Italy, and he was basically sent into exile, and he ended up in Amsterdam, and then he came to Eretz Israel, and he was buried in Akko. He he was only in Eretz Israel. A very short time, uh, two years, something like that. But he, he and his community built a big nest in Akko, and uh, we went like two years ago for the first time 
and saw his right, right in the middle of the Shuk in Akko is the Ramchal Shul <laughs> what blew my yeah. mind about it was that they have a, a space dug into the ground that's about six feet deep and about you know four amas and this is where he would stand when he was the Shaliyah Tzibu when he was leading the, the prayers because he wanted to be below, literally and physically below the rest of the community. <laughs> and it, it, it completely changed me. <laughs> Another in- interesting thing about him, he, very, very similar to the Arizal, he also died before the age of 40. In other words, he produced, we have to know that uh, it's not clear, but 20, 30 of his books um, were were destroyed because of a huge uh, controversy that broke out about his revealing uh, Kabbalah to the world, and he because he was so young that and it was uh, only seventy five years after Shabbat Tzvi. And see the uh, see the Arizal didn't reveal himself till he was 36, 30, uh, 35, and uh, I mean he passed away at 38. So he came to Sfad, He was approximately age 35. The Baal Shem also he didn't reveal himself until his 36th birthday. But the, the Ramchal in his late teens was already already gathering students around him and teaching uh, Kabbalah, and it was. It just because of the age that he lived in, it was very controversial. And he was very uh, unorthodox. He did not have a beard. He was one of the only uh, rabbis of that age who didn't have a beard. And he wrote plays. He wrote plays and poetry, which also was like, what's happening here? And he was revealing incredible Kabbalah in his late, early 20s. And people did, they simply didn't know what to make of him. When he came to Amsterdam, he was accepted with open arms. He was accepted, but uh, the damage had been done already in, in many of his books. Um, <coughs> he came to an agreement with the rabbis of the generation that um, he had to give them all of his books. And they were... They were gone. So why was he accepted with open arms in Amsterdam? Because not everyone accepted how the rabbis were dealing with him. Look at Amsterdam today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Amsterdam became this mecca for people who were not um, accepted. Because a lot of the Jews from, from the expulsion from Spain exactly. in 1992 yeah. ended up going to Amsterdam, among other places. But you know, they always, I think it probably had this tradition uh, for the Haman. <laughs> okay, so that's an introduction to the Ramchal. Very, very fascinating uh, individual. Okay, so we're gonna go. We're gonna go through. I'm not gonna read every word, and I'm not gonna say everything that he said. But I'm gonna try to actually give it over in the uh, methodical way that, that that he did. So the first thing he says is that God created man with intellect, and that with this intellect, 
uh, a person could gain knowledge from observing the world and that, uh, that because of this intellect a person can infer things and deduce things and other complex thought and he said this is the natural process of human reason I'll I'll just add here though I, I, I'm using the, the English translation from Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan translated uh, the book and then he says he said but God also uh, decreed that there were other means of gaining knowledge that are much higher than the intellect now there's the fact that God has granted us intellect and we can infer and deduce already separates us from the animals this is already being in the image of God the fact that we have intellect and can uh, understand so much is from our observation but then he says that, that there are other means of receiving wisdom and knowledge that are higher than intellect and he says this is what Rabbi Arya Kaplan translates as bestowed enlightenment in Hebrew it's haskalah hanishpa'at In other words, intellect that comes through and a, a divine inf- influx, a divine um, flow. Mishpa'at. With ayin. ayin. From the word shefa. Shefa means a flow of influence of mashpia yeah, is someone who influences so he calls this a, the intellect that is coming from a higher influence than just the human sechel, human intellect and he says this bestowed enlightenment is granted by Hashem because since it's above intellect one can only receive this if if one taps into it or you find grace in God's eyes and he allows it to come to you and he says that there are there are particular means through which this influence can come to a person which he'll explain later the different the different ways he says but when this influence reaches a person's mind the information (coughs) becomes fixed in the mind and he he perceives this knowledge clearly without any doubt and he knows it completely this is called Ruach HaKodesh this is called divine inspiration so his, his first point is there's intellect and there's something above intellect and he will explain more but his first general statement is that when we are granted or become aware of a higher influence acting upon our mind or our soul 
and when that influence strikes us is absolutely true and it rings clear and we have no doubt about it he said that's Ruach HaKodesh now <clears throat> the, the interesting thing about about this the way I want to present it is that we all experience this in different degrees different ways in other words there are just times that whether it's through prayer through being in nature through singing through meditation uh, or deeply contemplating a subject where we just become aware of an insight that we, we just know it didn't come from us it didn't come from us We're, we, we, we have that awareness that in a sense we're being helped with this uh, consciousness or this awareness so he said that's Ruach HaKodesh so later explained that in Ruach HaKodesh and prophecy there's a million degrees of it so and, and a minor role is something we all experience so he'll ex- explain in a, in, a, in, a, in a minute about how this is connected to thoughts that come to our mind so he says so in, in, in this manner through Ruach HaKodesh we can come to knowledge that we would not be able to receive through ordinary human reason and he said that this includes receiving information about future events and hidden secrets hidden secrets of the Torah hidden secrets of our own soul and what we are doing in the world or hidden secrets about the purpose of life or whatever it is he says that this experience can take place on many different levels and when it happens and how it happens and to who it happens and for what reason it happens uh, this is a, a big subject and has many many different different possibilities but he says in every case though the influence comes in such a manner that its recipient is clearly aware of it and this is a very very important point very important point because if not then you say well what is what is the fine line between intellect and this higher influence you get this brainstorm well is that just because you worked on this idea and all of a sudden your intellect figures it out how do you know? So he says the way you can know is when, when it's clear to you and, and there is a certain subjectivity here that you, you can't avoid but when it's clear to you that it's coming from a higher influence and I, I just venture to say that everyone has experienced this even if it's for small things it just has that feeling that one becomes clear we use that expression uh, this is now clear to me and sometimes it's clear because we worked through it 
And sometimes it's clear from an experience that we now, it just becomes clear. Okay, now he says, and, and so this becomes a very gray area in a sense, but he's aware of it. He said it's possible that such an influence, such a uh, divine, we'll call it divine help in coming to a certain level of knowledge can be extended to a person's mind that he, he or she clearly perceives something they did not perceive before without their being aware that it's because it's coming from a higher influence. Now, it's, it's, it's enclosed in our thought process. And so therefore, a person comes to an awareness and realizes that it's a, 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 like a chiddush, realizes that it's like, oh, I didn't think of this before. I never, why didn't I realize this? Or now it's clear to me and not associated with anything else other than their own thought process. He said that is possible. And he says that this is also divine inspiration. So this is also divine inspiration, but he calls this a very low level of divine inspiration. He says because and, and at times I'll actually just read the words because it's just so clear. It says, true divine inspiration, however, is a clear and vivid experience to the one worthy of it, and he is highly aware of its influence. So we have a gray area here. We have these songs come to us, uh, a picture comes to us, uh, we we have a problem in our life and we don't know how to solve it and then somehow we're able to break through and and we were aware that it's a breakthrough we're aware that we just had inspiration but we sometimes we just think they're just coming from us and it can be it doesn't mean that every time we have a novel or innovative thought it means that it's divine inspiration but it, it it means that we can have divine inspiration and not really be aware of it. And you'll see later he gives examples of prophecy as well. This we were talking about, and the example he used, and we'll go over it again, is, is Moshe at the burning bush. He said, because first Moshe sees a physical, what he thinks is a physical bush burning, and he says he realizes unusual and he turned to see it and then he became aware of the angel of God the second example again this is not divine inspiration this is talking about prophecy now the second example uses of Shmuel when Shmuel is a young boy so he hears a voice calling him Shmuel, Shmuel and he gets up and he goes to Ellie and he said yes you called me no, I didn't call you. And they both went back to sleep. And then Shmuel hears it again. Shmuel, Shmuel. Again he gets up and he goes to him. And then Ellie figured it out. That it was God calling him. And then Shmuel becomes aware that it's God speaking to him. So there he uses an example that we could use here also. Where it, they weren't aware in the beginning that this is prophecy, but then it moves into it. So the same thing, we can have 
experiences of divine inspiration and, and never uh, count it to a higher level than our intellect. Like we said last week, this concept of the matrix, which we brought up many different times, really fits in here because if we're saying that past, present, and future are really all happening at the same time, and our past lives are really with us also, so sometimes we, we plug into that information without even realizing it, without, and as we discussed last time, we don't even know even why uh, the thought of someone pops into our head and then, you know, two minutes later they call on the telephone. We, we, we mark it like, wow, that's <laughs> unusual. But to understand, well, well, why that little thing and not bigger things? Like, and why now? And why it hasn't ha- happened in like three years? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but, but it's a good example. It's a good example of right, getting inspiration mm-hmm. and what we call our intuition. Mm-hmm. Intuition and inspiration. Uh, also, there's a very fine line between how, how we're going to define those two things he continues and says there, there is now a, another level that is much higher than divine inspiration and this is prophecy so he already makes these division between there's a level called divine inspiration which has many levels in it but then there's something else that's qualitatively different and that is called prophecy and I'm going to read this because it's, it's so beautiful. He says about prophecy. He says, This is a degree of inspiration where an individual reaches a level where he literally binds himself to God in such a way that he can actually feel this attachment. Now, the reason this is so important, and we discussed it last week, but it's, it's worth going over, is most people, including myself, think of prophecy in, in a way that God comes and He speaks to a prophet about a message or information to be imparted to the people. And that's how most people think of prophecy. And I also thought, thought of prophecy that way. But here he's telling us something actually quite different. And remember, we connected this to the idea of what it means a million prophets in Israel. In other words, prophecy is really a state of consciousness. And it is not dependent at all on receiving any particular message from God to to be imparted to anyone else. Prophecy is a state of consciousness that applies to an individual and it is not dependent really in any way of God revealing information or giving a message to a particular person that they should then take it to the people. He'll then explain that in prophecy this can happen. In other words, that God does use 
this higher level of consciousness called prophecy in which to impart messages to the people and in some cases all mankind through a particular prophet and sometimes the prophecies are very we'll call them uh, local mm-hmm. and uh, temporal about situations that are happening right then and what will happen uh, in those circumstances if certain things are, are done or not done and other times it's a much broader prophecy about Mashiach, the future temple, the gathering of the exiles, uh, the resurrection of the dead, all of these things that appear in the prophets that <coughs> were really messages, universal messages for all time. It sounds like it's two parts of a process. Like there's the, the receptivity part and the receiving of the information or the message or the awareness or the knowledge and a whole other thing is the imperative to give it over right right exactly and so therefore we have an entirely new paradigm of prophecy here where it becomes that the prophet who brings the message to the people is actually a minority phenomenon within a much broader picture called wider consciousness or prophecy and when I first learned this and, and, and learned other things as well for me it was a whole paradigm shift as to what prophecy is a prophecy really is uh, states of consciousness that anyone can reach so now he says though so then again where is the line between <coughs> divine inspiration and prophecy he then clearly realizes that the one to whom he is bound is God in a manner that will be discussed shortly this is sensed with complete clarity with an awareness that leaves no room for any doubt whatsoever the individual is as sure of it as he would if it, w- if it were a physical object observed with his physical senses. So I'll read one more sentence and I underline this here. The main concept of true prophecy is therefore that a living person achieves such an attachment and bond with God. This That was the exact sentence which cemented it in my mind what he's trying to say here the main concept of true prophecy is therefore that a living person achieves such an attachment and bond with God so in other words in a, a more global language prophecy is connecting to God doesn't mean every time we try to connect to God we will achieve prophecy it doesn't mean that we will always be successful to be connected to God that will open us up to this kind of experience but what it is saying that it's it's making a, a corollary between prophecy and being close to God and then later he explains a little bit he doesn't go into great depth some of the different methods 
that we can use to reach this closeness to God. The Slonomer Rebbe says it must be a hundred times in the Tivat Shomo, at least a hundred times, where he says that the main point, the main purpose of all of the mitzvah is to achieve Dvekut with Hashem. He says this, like I said, if he says it <coughs> once, he says it a hundred times. Uh, yeah, clinging to God. He said that's where all the mitzvot are meant to take us. I'm thinking about Bilam. So I'm thinking, is there anybody who God pushes away who wants to get close? Hmm. What about the two that is a very complex answer, which I don't have a full answer, but Cain and Isaac. What? Cain and Isaac. What? Well, the 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 pushing away. Ah, okay. <coughs> okay. Um, but the question here is, in our minds, Bilam would have been the first person to be pushed away, and yet he had he had full access. Uh, he had he had a high degree of prophecy. So we already actually touched on that when the Torah talks about false prophets. And even though it's hard for us to understand, but that once God allows this kind of consciousness to be achieved, that a person can achieve certain levels of it, what's called lowly shma not for the sake of heaven that a person can reach these and then we're given different signs now to know if they're a real prophet or a false prophet but it is an enigma it's an enigma that God would allow such high levels of consciousness to be reached by people who will then use them for uh, negative purposes that is definitely an enigma. But in the Torah, God says that He does this in order to test the people. That's in the text itself. And he's talking about a false prophet. And He says, even if the false prophet does miracles and gives signs, but then He comes and says, let's go serve other gods, then you know that it's a false prophet. And then the Torah says, and this is a way that God tests the people whether they are going to follow Him or not. However we understand that. However we understand it. So, it could be, in the case of Bilaam, he didn't deserve it. But, God used him, and it's obvious that He used him for His own purposes. Because when he tells Bilaam, don't go with them, Bilaam starts and, and the angel appears to him and says, why did you go? You were told not to go. He says, okay, if you want me to, go, if you want me to turn around, I'll turn around. And God says, no, go, but only say what I put in your mouth. So it becomes clear at that point, as it, as it were, you can talk like this, but that God like, made a decision Okay, 
I can use Bilaam. I have a good purpose for him here now. And so God used Bilaam. Uh, but then we saw the enigma. Why? Why, why, did, why did God have to use Bilaam? Why didn't he just tell him, go back home? Go back home? Why couldn't we have learned these prophecies from Moshe and not Bilaam? And as we mentioned, the last set of prophecies that Bilaam gave are the clearest in the entire Chumash about the coming of Mashiach and what will happen at the end of days. Even Yaakov, when he wanted to reveal the end of days, the Shekhinah left him. So to continue, so the Ramchal now says that, so what happens when you reach this Tevekut? What happens? So sometimes nothing other than, we'll call it the spiritual bliss of being close to God. But other times, the experience is accompanied by certain information, meaning about could be about your own life, usually it is about your own life, and enlightenment, where the experience enlightens you about something, about life or Torah or God or the soul or existence. And so, through prophecy, one can gain tremendous knowledge of many truths and many of God's hidden mysteries. And when this occurs, it's perceived very clearly, just like all knowledge that comes through all the different levels of uh, divine inspiration he says but prophecy comes with much greater force than divine inspiration and therefore it's qualitatively different and we will get to his experience of prophecy which we also already touched upon (coughs) that the prophetic experience is an overwhelming experience. A person is temporarily, temporarily overwhelmed by an influx of energy, light, consciousness, uh, inspiration. And so therefore, divine inspiration does not come with such force. Does not come with such force. Then he explains that this experience of prophecy, he's now talking about prophecy, can come through many different methods or intermediaries. And these can include angels or what are called magidim, divine beings that come and impart information or knowledge to another person. Like one of the most uh, famous Magidim was uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo, who was the, the great legalist. Well, many people don't know that he was a great Kabbalist as well. And he had a Magid, he had a divine being that came to him on a regular basis and taught him Torah and taught him great mysteries 
and he wrote I myself have not read it but he wrote books that exist today of his experiences and what he learned from this Magid so here this is only 500 years ago and again it's, it's, it's so beautiful because he's known as, as the epitome of, of logical legal thought and he had a Magid and it was, it was known it was not something he tried to hide it was a known thing and then he says these intermediaries which by the way he doesn't he doesn't use the word angels or magidim he calls them God's servants he says that these intermediaries act as lenses through which one sees God's glory now the fact that he uses the word lens is because in, in the Midrash, the Talmud, when it talks about prophecy, and especially the difference between Moshe and all the other prophets, it uses this word lens. Aspeklaria. That's the word that's used. Aspeklaria. And it says that Moshe received his prophecy through Aspaklaria Hamidira, through a clear lens, whereas all the other prophets received it through a lens that was low Meira. It was more what we call frosty. In other words, like a frosty window where you see the images and the shadows of the people on the other side and depending on how much frost there is or how translucent it is that will be as clear as the image will be but it's not a a, a clear pain only Moshe saw with a a clear pain we're going to see shortly uh, the connection to imagination in this this whole picture Yeah, for sure. Um, the, as Rav <coughs> Ginsburg teaches it, each sphere has an inner motivating force or dimension. The inner force of that is Yichud, is unification. And since here we're saying, how does one achieve a prophetic experience? is through unifying with God. So therefore, God is, is critical in this entire process. But even more than that, that we know that we usually only count ten spirit. But they're really eleven. They're really eleven. So therefore, usually if the system that you're using at that particular moment or context begins with Keter then you don't count that 
And if you start from Chachma, like say Chabad, Chachma Bina Gad, doesn't start from Keta. It starts from Chachma. Chachma Bina Dad. Both of them are legitimate. And the reason for this is it's given over in Kabbalah is that Dad is a mirror image of Keta. And the way that they're constructed is right below Keter. Now the reason this is important is because Keter represents the supraconscious. The conscious is represented by Chachma, Bina, and Dat. That's the head. But the crown, Keter sits on the head. It's the supraconscious. And the supraconscious is the experience of prophecy. And so since Dat is the mirror image of it, it, it becomes the channel. It's exactly what we're saying. You know, the experience of Keter is beyond words, beyond any description. But when it filters in, it comes to Dat. Or if we go through Hachman Din and ends up in Dat, but it's going to come through Dat because that becomes the in, the way the intellect through our thoughts and our imagination can now take the experience and translate it. He'll explain this, is that's how a prophet actually gives over his words. It's a, pro, it's a, it's a process through an experience and then it becomes thought and then it becomes uh, enclosed in an allegory or a parable mm-hmm. according to the, the prophet's unique personality yeah. I'm thinking about the I vow experience and how the second you try to express it you have to enter the realm of language where there's separation so right. so that's why the, the, the experience of Devekut it, there's no way to describe it and that's why it, it's di- again it's different than what we think we think the prophet reaches this high level and then God just like, talks to him and says this is what you tell the people but the way he ex- <coughs> explains it not just him mm-hmm. is that it's not like that it's that it's just a pure experience you will see in one minute it's a just a pure experience of being close to God, of unifying with God, of clinging to God. And they, only then does it filter down into our intellect and into our imagination and, and then into words. To cling, to, to be close to. I just had an image of That's very beautiful because in last week's Parsha, in last week's Parsha, 
when Moshe is explaining, bargaining, pleading with God not to destroy the people, these are the golden calf, at one point he says, because they are a stiff-necked people. So the simple is, okay, they're stiff-necked, but they don't really mean it, you, know, you should forgive them, but Hasidut explains it, that what Moshe meant was maybe that, but in addition, that he meant you should save them because they are a stiff-necked people. And in the future, when Jewish history unfolds the way it's going to unfold, what other people are going to be so stiff-necked to continue to follow you <laughs> and that that's why you should save them because they are stiff-necked wow. so it's very much what you're saying wow. huh? very much that's what you're saying now, so, so. Right. <laughs> right. okay now he says like this he says when God reveals himself and bestows his influence a prophet is greatly overwhelmed. His body and all of his limbs immediately begin to tremble and he feels as if he's being turned inside out. Shaker, Quaker, <laughs> And he explains, he says, because this is the nature of the physical. When the physical is in proximity to pure spiritual it has, a, it has a very hard time being a proper vessel for this he says it cannot tolerate so this is how we understand that the first thing that God says to Moshe at the burning bush is take off your shoes because the place that you are standing is holy I think you put on the shoes to kind of like uh, break the circuit. When you stick your finger in the socket, <laughs> that rubber sole shoes, leather soles, maybe you're a little protected. Like that. So, so here it's explained that it doesn't mean what it, yeah, what it means though is that shoes represent physicality. That's like it's one of the thing, five things we don't do in Yom Kippur's. We don't wear leather shoes because it's symbolic of physical comfort. So the first thing God says is, if you want to receive this revelation, you have to take off your physicality. You have to because the place that you're standing is holy, and to receive what is. I'm about to give you it can't be received in an ordinary ordinary not just level of consciousness but an ordinary connection to the physical so that's why when we we think about clinging to Hashem we, we think of those moments where we're not aware of our physical bodies at all whether we're uh, over we're, we're overcome with the nigan or we're lost in the meditation or we're, we've been uplifted through some spiritual experience at that moment we're not really aware of our bodies even, interesting enough even let's say we're dancing and uh, 
we, we transcend the body. The, the dancing becomes the vehicle for a spiritual experience. I had this recently. It was, it was the first time in a long time. It was actually at Daniel Farber's wedding where the, the dancing was just mamash a gavalt. And um, I, I just really like let myself go in the dance. It was not easy to do it, to really let go. And there was just a certain point, I, I mean, I knew I was dancing, but the, it became a very different experience. That's not what I was experiencing up here, right? It was just like, yeah, I, I, was, I wasn't that far gone that I, I, I didn't think I had a physical body. I, I knew I was dancing, but I became aware, like, wow. Um, yeah, that like this is this is something different than what I'm used to when dancing. Like it was hard to explain, but I just knew something else was happening. But it was all happening up here. It wasn't really an awareness anymore of the physical. Ah, uh, come on! You were dancing in your body. No, I know that. That's you what I said. You had a transcendental yeah. experience. Yeah. No, no, no. That's what I said. That I, I was aware. You're connected. Yeah, I was. Deeply. I was aware that I was dancing. It wasn't like. Let's see. Some, no, sometimes you're meditating. Mm-hmm. And you no longer are aware that your mm-hmm. consciousness is mm-hmm. coming from your body. Mm-hmm. Your, your thoughts are like mm-hmm. in such a place. Mm-hmm. It's like you're not aware. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying like I was aware though. I was aware I was dancing. But it was just like a, a new experience of dancing. It was just it was just a very spiritual mm-hmm. um, consciousness. Yeah, you know, as I said, my teacher used to say you know, become the dance, become the song. Mm-hmm. And I know that experience, mm-hmm. and it's not mm-hmm. that you don't know, but the body is is moving itself, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you are in the flow of being the dance. Okay, so then he says, <coughs> at this place when where <laughs> the body is now being overwhelmed, in a sense, by this experience, he says, the prophet's senses cease to operate and his mental facilities can no longer function independently. They have all become dependent on God and the influx that is being bestowed. And the mental facilities, faculties, excuse me, faculties. It says, as a result of this attachment of the soul to God, it gains a degree of enlightenment completely beyond the powers of human reason. When the, the soul is attached to God, it gains a degree of enlightenment completely beyond the powers of human reason. This enlightenment does not come to it because of its own nature, but as a consequence of the fact that the highest root is bound to it. The soul therefore perceives things in a much higher manner than it could ever attain by itself. And then he says, and this is what makes prophecy qualitatively different than divine inspiration, that even though certain knowledge comes to us in divine inspiration, certain realizations but the 
the quality of the enlightenment here is just far greater in, in prophecy. Okay, now this is, <clears throat> this is very important. So he says, and this is crucial for understanding, he said it already, but let's hear how he says it. He says, the revelation of God's glory is what initiates everything transmitted in a prophetic vision. It's it's all coming from God. Now listen carefully. This is then transmitted to the power of imagination in the prophet's soul, which in turn forms images of the concepts forced upon it by the powers of the highest revelation. Could you read that over yeah. here, please? <laughs> <laughs> Can I give an image just as yeah. you're hearing this again? The, we've got all these blossoming almond trees. So Yermiao's mm-hmm. first prophecy was uh, an almond branch, mm-hmm. but his job was mm-hmm. to interpret it. Right. Mm-hmm. right. So you started uh, with the revelation yeah. of... Okay, so first, the the prophet's soul receives this experience revelation which in turn oh excuse me which is then transmitted to the power of imagination in the soul which in turn forms images of the concepts forced upon it Wait, four images of the concepts mm-hmm. by the power of the highest revelation. Again, this process. You can, we can do it in three words. Revelation or revelation slash experience slash uh, expanded consciousness is translated or filtered into the imagination slash intellect which then is translated into concrete images allegories parables so it's a three pronged process after imagination, intellect is then what? Into images. Intellect. And then it's... Um, the third stage is images, which will thou say allegories, parables. But here right now, just images. Because right now, is this, <clears throat> we have to use our own experience to understand this. It's just... It's just pure devekut. There's no thoughts. There are no images. It's just a an experience of being one with God. It, 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 it transcends any real ability to to put into words. So, what do you do with that experience? So that's what he's explaining. How does it end up that the prophet? gives over words. So he says it like filters down. That experience when he let's say when he comes down from that high experience, then he, he doesn't lose it. 
it starts to filter into his imagination and it's like then he starts getting images of what that experience was in other words he translates it into something that means something to him yeah, well, yeah, yeah. No, no. God is helping with this whole process. He says, the ima- listen, to the, oh, I didn't read the sentence. The imagination, however, does not initiate anything on its own. It's still under the influence of this divine bestowal. So it's like a clean, really. Yeah. So, yeah. So when it gets down to it, if you, if, if you want to ask, so how do you receive divine inspiration and prophecy as you said by becoming a pure clear vessel for God's light and how do we do that by clinging to God that's how we that's how the kli and the and the or meet the vessel and the light meet at the devekut at the devekut that's where the light can start streaming into the vessel. Until then, it can't. That's the whole point of, of reaching the Dubaiku, because before that, you, we have a Kli, and it could even be on a very high level. But unless you reach the level of the Dubaikut, the ore is not going to stream into it. And But when it does stream in, it's, it's like, like that. Okay, so in the time that we have left, I want to just finish... Now, two short paragraphs, and then we'll, we really have what to meditate on today, right? <coughs> so listen to this. These images, remember that's the, the third stage here. Now images are coming. These images in turn convey to the prophet ideas and information whose conception comes from the power of the revealed glory. Meaning, he's not trying to come up with images. Remember, that's what he said. The imagination, however, does not initiate anything on its own. He's, the prophet's still in the, the power of this experience. But it's now filtered down into images. And it's not like the prophet is consciously th- thinking, well, what, how can I say this best? And what in, It's still like flowing, but now it's filtering down into, into images. I just thought of something. I, I think this is a, a decent uh, example. You're standing on the top of a mountain. You're, you're by yourself. You're blissing out. You feel at one with God and nature. And you're just just blissing out. That's it. You're just experiencing just how everything is so beautiful and perfect and how close you feel to God. And then, like, words start coming in order to capture that moment. Like a poem comes to you. A poem comes to you. And it's not if you're, you're not even as soon as you say okay, okay even okay some people can do this and obviously at that point it also works you can say okay how am I going to put this into words or you go home and a day later it's like like I want to put this in words and you work at it that's also beautiful because you're still under the influence 
But here we're talking about a flow that there's no break really. Mm-hmm. So you're on the mountain and all of a sudden a, a, a sentence comes to you, an image which then gets translated into words and you like say, yeah. Right? And then a poem like this kind of flows to you. Like that's something we could understand, but here it's, it's happening the same or way. A melody, or, or a melody, or a melody, or a painting, or painting, a framing anything. of yes. photography, anything. Yeah. any of the artistic <coughs> Okay. The, sub, okay. the subject remains fixed in the prophet's mind, and when he returns to his normal state, remember, he's not in his normal state yet, just because images are, he's still like, He's coming down, but he's still way up there. I'll say it again. The subject remains fixed in the prophet's mind, and when he returns to his normal state, this knowledge is retained with perfect clarity. This is the idea of prophecy in general. Can he ever lose that? It's retained at that moment. Perfect clarity. Can he ever lose that? I, we all we all fall to the uh, problems of aging and memory, and but that's not what it's talking. It's just saying that this revelation becomes fixed in the prophet's nishama and consciousness, and it's it's just there. Just like we all remember experiences from 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Clear as day. Mm-hmm. Clear as day. Something happened. It doesn't even have to be spiritual here, but just something happened in our lives that had a tremendous effect on us. And 40 years have gone by, and, you, and we still remember. Sometimes you can remember the smells, you can remember the taste of food, you can... If, if it was traumatic, you could start crying. I mean, like, it's just, it just comes up. But it's still there. So I, my question was, I, I, not around aging and memory. If a life event happens mm-hmm. that, let's say, are traumatic or whatever, can, or I'm not going the prophet's way, can the prophet lose sight of what he knew to be true? At the time that he actually knew it, mm-hmm. kind of I'd say most likely yes. In other words, I think when he says that it becomes clear and uh, is retained with perfect clarity, I think that means as long as the prophet remains a, a, a true prophet. Mm-hmm. But God, for His own reasons, like Rachel just said, <coughs> when Yaakov wanted to reveal the end of days. He saw, he knew what to say. And then God, in a sense, took the vision away from him. So, yes, that can happen. Or someone can fall from their high level and could even end up to be a false prophet. That can also happen. That's also another once you reach this level, it doesn't guarantee that you're gonna be like perfectly enlightened forever now. You still have to work every day at, at, at maintaining that. Dabazella used to say, you know, all these things that we think are peak experiences, P-E-A-K, they're peak, P-E-E-K. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. He used to say that to me. Yeah. <laughs> That's very nice. Very nice. So I, I can say, 
I mean, just like I was very inspired by everything I learned about reincarnation, uh, learning this information uh, is very inspiring. Very uh, gives me personally a lot of incentive. Uh, just and I'm very personal. I'm looking to be a prophet, but by learning this, seeing uh, what levels we can reach when we focus and concentrate on trying to cling to God, it's it's it, you couldn't ask for more incentive than this kind of learning. I mean, <laughs> so we should all in our own way, on our own level, really uh, try to achieve closeness with God in order to experience these higher levels of, of consciousness and that you know, we should feel God's influence flowing into our nishamas, our, our intellect, our hearts. That's, that's what the Slonimer said. That's what it's all about. He said, that's what the mitzvot are about. He's not talking about meditating and <clears throat> using all these methods. He's just saying, that's what the, the, the mitzvot are about, is to bring us to the Beikut. So in other words, what he's explaining is not, we, we tend to like narrow the field as to what can bring us to the Beikut. But what he's saying, lighting Shabbos candles can bring us to the Beikut. Lighting Hanukkah candles can bring us to Vekut. Visiting the sick can bring us to the Vekut. Giving Sadaka can bring us to the Vekut. All these things become like many meditations, many kabanot for reaching higher levels. Thank you.